Amen. Wow, that song, I, as you listen to the lyrics there, um, it really does capture what Christianity is, which is getting outside of yourself, focusing on God and who He is, and as you do that, there should be a, an awe and a wonder and a, a sense of anticipation, a sense of of uh, adoring um, of his nature. And then as that begins to happen, then you see how he's created people and that he loves people in a way that we have such a hard time seeing, but in light of who he is, then you can love people. Um, it's just really amazing to, to hear that because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot uh, lately is just that trying to get outside of myself. Anybody ever have that issue? Like you're just so stuck in your own mind and your own feelings about your life and your thoughts and who you are and how people think about you and how you feel. and Like you just can't get out of that. And, and the only way to get out of it is to really just focus on God. I mean, it's it's a hard thing to do, but that's that's part of the process, or at least it's the beginning step, is just get into a place of worship. And uh, so uh, I'm just rambling at this point, I guess. But so um, as we start here with this discipleship equals freedom, the there's a concept or there's an issue um, uh, within Christianity that we've struggled with from day one. Um, it starts with the reality that um, Christianity is about grace, okay? Christianity is about grace. It is the step that God takes towards us in order to change us, in order to uh, allow us to have a relationship with himself, which means that we're free from sin, we're free from the consequences of sin, we're free from uh, the rules and the laws and the regulations and all the things that, you know, we had inherited for forever, uh, so grace is the foundational doctrine of Christianity. It's the foundational doctrine of Christ. Now, the problem is that almost immediately uh, we have this issue of what about the rules and what about the morals and what about the things we're supposed to do and do we have to do anything and, and what if I sin and, and does it matter if I sin? And so we swing the pendulum over to grace and we focus on that and what happens is sometimes... A lot of the time is that we, we can become a, a, a culture, a Christian culture of cheap grace where rules and morals don't matter because God just forgives it all and that's, it's all really about what Jesus did for me and I don't have to do anything, right? And then we try to correct that by coming back to the other side and saying, no, it does matter what you do. You have to follow the Lord. He, he requires some things of you. Uh, there are some things that are all through his word. In fact, the first part of the, the Bible, the Old Testament, has 613 laws that the Jewish people followed. And you say, okay, that's a lot of rules. But then if you go to the New Testament, you find there are a thousand and one commands in the New Testament that Christians are supposed to do. We say, well, that's a lot of rules. And so you end up coming over here into the side of legalism and you say, wait, 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 what about grace? And we keep swinging that pendulum back and forth trying to get a balance. Now, what I'm saying is that I believe that the doctrine of 
Christian freedom helps us to bring these two things together in a way that should make sense. Okay, We'll see if I do a good job of making sense of it today, but it should help us to make sense of it. Okay, So that's where we're, we're headed. So if you want to join me in God's Word, we're going to be in John chapter 8. And uh, would you stand with me as we read God's Word this morning? John chapter 8, and we're starting in verse 31. So Jesus is teaching at the temple. Um, he's gathered uh, a bunch of people around him. They're debating. Um, and so we're picking it up kind of in the middle. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Now keep that in mind because as he's going through this discussion, debate, argument, it comes to a point where some people begin to put their faith in him. So he begins to talk to them. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, this is weird, okay? That doesn't sound very controversial, but they answer him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Lord, we want to understand your word. We want to come to a place of trust, adoration, worship. Um, Lord, that we want to be, become children of, of God, which is what you've promised, what you've made possible through what you did for us on the cross. And so as we open your word, um, we're also asking that your Holy Spirit would come and uh, make uh, sense of it for us, Lord, that you said that you're the teacher that your Holy Spirit is the guide into all truth. And so, uh, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would do uh, that wonderful, <laughs> miraculous work um, of taking uh, the Word of God and, and translating it into the hearts of every believer and uh, letting it do its, its miraculous work of, of revitalizing, changing, renewing, restoring, and, and growing, maturing us, Lord, for your glory. Um, and so we just pray for you, to help us to see ourselves as free people, children um, in the household of God. And we thank you that you make this possible through faith in Jesus. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So, um, Janice, can I get just a little more volume um, on my mic? I, I want to yell at you, but I want it to come through the mic. Um, okay, so <laughs> John chapter 8, it, it begins with one of the most famous stories in the New Testament, one that we're all familiar with, and as soon as I mention it, you're going to recall all the things that happen in John chapter 8 um, in this story, which is the woman caught in adultery. Everybody say, aha. You got the, the woman caught in adultery is one that people know backwards and forwards because it's it's so often repeated and explained and and used to help us to understand uh, the grace nature of Jesus, the the mercy and the forgiveness that God offers through Christ, and and we see this really amazing story of how this works. And so, uh, what's going on here is that some Pharisees and Pharisees were the uh, legalistic 
brand of the Jewish people. Okay, They bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and uh, they're trying to capture uh, him. They're trying to, to catch him in something that would be um, maybe controversial, something that would be uh, a, a contradiction, or something that would be just off where they could point to and, and persecute him. Okay, So they're trying to catch him in, in something. And so they bring this woman to him who has been caught in adultery. The law says that she should be stoned to death. Okay, that's what the law says. It requires that. It, it demands that there's justice. And so uh, to them, it's, it's almost like, what, what's Jesus going to do with this situation? And what happens, though, is something that is very unusual because Jesus almost always is going to do something that is shocking and not anticipated. Okay, and so they bring her to him, and right away, what usually gets talked about is the, the issue that the man is not brought also, right? Have you heard that before? She's caught in the act of adultery. Where's the guy? So you would immediately think, well, here's an easy out for Jesus. He can just say, well, you, this isn't fair. You didn't bring you know, the guy, and so how are you going to persecute her, not him, etc.? That's not where he goes with this at all. So they bring her to him, and he begins to write in the, the dirt on the ground. You, you, everybody's seen the images of this and tried to figure out, what is he writing, right? We have all these ideas. And one of the most famous or popular ideas is that he's writing all their sins, right? He, he knows each and every person, what's on their heart, what's, what they've done, what's on their minds. He knows every, every action, every intention. And so maybe he's writing uh, all their sins out one by one. Okay. You know, uh, Zechariah, oh, here's what he did yesterday. You know, now here's the thing. I heard this other interpretation uh, that I thought was very interesting. And uh, uh, it was in the Bible study with Marty South just, I don't know, a few months ago, whenever it was. And he said, so I'm giving credit to Marty South. And so if you disagree with this statement, then you go talk to him. Okay. So he said he thought that what Jesus was writing in the dirt was how much God loved the woman. I thought, that's, that's interesting. Do you think that's interesting? You ever heard that before? So here's the thing. We don't know what Jesus wrote. He could have been writing anything. So anything that you want to say that he wrote, you could say, maybe he wrote that. And you... Nobody could argue with you that it's absolutely wrong because we don't know what he wrote. But I thought more and more about that issue, that perhaps he was writing how much God loved her, and I thought, you know what, that's very, very insightful because of what next happens. Okay, there's something that begins to transpire here that I thought, that makes a lot of sense. So as he finishes writing, he looks up and he says, you remember this? He who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, we know they're all human beings who have sinned. Who is the one person who has not sinned? Okay, so the implication is that Jesus is the judge. He is uh, the, the one with authority. He is the one with the ability to cast the first stone. He could do that. Because he has not sinned. He's the sinless one. He could look at all of the sins of the world and say, I'm going to judge that. He could, he could be the judge of that. And so he says he was without sin, cast first stone. And they begin to drop their rocks one by one, beginning with the oldest. 
And so they walk away because they know that they've sinned and they can't argue against what Jesus is saying. Okay, we know this story. And so what happens next, though, is interesting because now he says to the woman, um, is there anyone here to condemn you? And she says, no one. And even though he's just made the point that he could condemn her, what does he say? Neither do I condemn you. And we love that because right there we see the mercy and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God um, explained in this, in this real life story. Now, let me pause here for a minute and just explain something about uh, the nature of forgiven sin. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and his payment for your sin on the cross, then what happens is that the Bible says you are no longer under condemnation. God has forgiven you, and he looks at you like you are Jesus. Like he sees you, he sees Jesus because you have been covered by the blood of Jesus, and so therefore you are completely forgiven. You are changed from the inside out. You are what we call theologically positionally saved, redeemed, pure, perfect, righteous, positionally, because of Jesus' blood covering your sin. Now, does that mean that your sins don't also still have consequence in the real world? God has forgiven you, and he says, I'm not going to hold that against you, and if you die, you get to go to heaven, and I'm going to see you as forgiven and clean and pure. But if you sin in the world, do you still have consequences in the world? Okay. And I think sometimes we miss this issue. With the woman caught in adultery, Jesus is saying, you're forgiven. But it doesn't mean that she didn't have to still go deal with a broken marriage. She just committed adultery. She's got, well, either she does or the man she was with, somebody's married to somebody, right? There's a marriage there. It's got to be fixed, dealt with, restored, or if that's not possible because it takes two people to restore that marriage, then you got to deal with a divorce and all the repercussions of that. But she still had consequences from her sin. And here's what we have to understand about sin. This is a very important concept that a lot of Christians don't get. I don't think they get. Is that even though I'm forgiven by God for the things that I've done and I ask for forgiveness and he cleanses me, the sin in itself has its own consequences. It's built into sin. This is why the very next thing that Jesus says to the lady, remember, go and sin no more. And it's not because God can't forgive her. It's not that she has to become perfect in that moment. It's because, listen, sin has deadly consequences in and of itself, and you need to be aware of that. And so go and seek to try to be better. (laughs) It's like, well, the concept of grace and the concept of living a godly life are still mixed in together. Everywhere that you look in Scripture, it's always mixed in together that God forgives us, there's grace, there's wonderful mercies that we have every morning. They're new and fresh every day, and we see ourselves as these new creatures, and yet there's still this this issue of I still live in the world and I still have a sinful nature and a, and a desire to do the wrong thing and I have to fight that all the time. And how do we fight that? 
How do we deal with that? And so here's what's going on next. This is why I think that that story um, is the context for what Jesus says about freedom because it highlights in a real-life story the, the theological teaching that he's going to give us in just a, just a minute. Okay, so the next thing was that he tells them that he's the light of the world. And we love that, right? He's the light of the world, and, and we're going to come to this place. It says in verse 12, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees um, are beginning to argue with Jesus because he's basically saying, if you come follow me, you're, you have salvation, you have eternal life. They didn't necessarily want Jesus to have that answer, right? They wanted to have a different answer. They wanted the law and the religion and Judaism and the temple sacrifices and being ethnically Jewish. We, they wanted those things to be the answer, not a relationship in and through Jesus. Because that's going to be a huge flip in, in their minds from where they've been going to where they need to go. Okay? And so they begin to argue with him. And what happens next is that he says, and this is verse 19, says, if you knew me, you would know the Father also. Because the whole thing is hinging in their minds legally on the validity of his testimony. In, in Jewish law, um, the witness of one person was not valid. You needed the witness of two people for it to be legally binding in court. You got that? Two people. Here's Jesus being his own witness. And they're saying, nah, we're throwing out your testimony because it's not valid because you don't have somebody to come alongside and, and also testify along with you. And he says, my father's testifying along with me. If you knew me, you would know the father. Now, let me explain something that's kind of interesting about that. Could Jesus have said, if you knew the Father, you'd know me? Could he have said that? I think he could have said that. But he said it the exact opposite. He said, if you knew me, you would know the Father. And I think there's a really, really important reason why he says it that way, why he uses it in that specific terminology, is because all the Old Testament, okay, Jesus is going to fulfill. He is going to fulfill the moral code of the, the law in his perfect life. He's going to fulfill the prophetic nature of the Messiah in his uh, miraculous birth, in his sinless life, in the miracles that he performs, in the fact that he is by lineage from the tribe of Judah, that he is by lineage from, from the family of David, okay, that he has to fulfill certain prophetic things that make him eligible to be the Messiah. Then he's going to fulfill all the miraculous things of the Old Testament that point to by... Um, what we say, it's pointing to in the figurative, in the sense of there's miracles in the Old Testament that point to the miracles that the Messiah would perform. So he's going to fulfill all that. He's going to fulfill the sacrificial code of the Old Testament. You follow me? That he's fulfilling all these different things. And he's going to fulfill one final thing. He is the final revelation of the nature of God, the fullness of God in human form. So, what happens is that by all these things, Jesus is saying, if you knew me, if you would accept me, then you'd understand who God is. And what's going to happen is if you would receive me, then you will have salvation. But if you don't receive me, he tells them later, you're going to die in your sins. 
Now, he's telling Jewish people who believe in God, who, who obey the law, who perform the sacrifices, that if they don't accept him as the Messiah, they will die in their sins. Now, I don't know if that sounds like kind of startling. How, how, how can somebody say, if you're doing all these things, living by these rules, this religion and this regulation, how can you say that they're going to die in their sins? Because Jesus fulfills the law, and the law is no longer powerful to bring about salvation. You could not be saved under the Old Testament legal system if you wanted to. Gasp! Right? You can't. Jesus is the only way to the Father. This is why he is so offensive to people. Is because he's saying the way to God is through me and by no other means. You can't be good enough. You can't follow the law well enough. You can't give anything that will replace or pay for your sin. It can't buy your soul. You can't, you can't do it. It's only through him. And so this is why the next thing is he says, um, well, hold on before we go there. He says in verse 28, uh, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, okay, pointing to his crucifixion, then you, will have, uh, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he said these things, many believed in him. They, they begin to put their faith like, okay, I think what you're saying is true. I, I'm hearing what you're saying. You're saying that you're going to fulfill all these things of the Old Testament. We need to put our faith in you. And many people start to do that in the temple. These are Jewish people in the temple area saying, I, I think I believe in you. The very next thing is, so that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, okay, these people that are right there putting their faith in him in that moment, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then they get kind of angry. I don't know. It doesn't say they get angry. It says, we are offspring of... I mean, just how do you read this? This is how I read it. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been slave to anybody. How is it that you say you will become free? Doesn't that sound like you're kind of accusing him of like something that's offensive? Is it, or is that just me? Am I reading that into this? Yes? No? Okay, thank you. That's all I needed. So what's happening is that, let me, let me pause for a minute. What is happening is that the people who are under the law do not necessarily think that being under the law is a problem. It doesn't feel like slavery. It doesn't, it maybe in some ways is very comforting. The human heart likes religion. We, we like it. We like structure. We like rules. We like regulations. We like authority. We like somebody to say, do this, 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 and then you get this result. In fact, I would guess, maybe I'm wrong, but even among a bunch of American free people who love their freedom and liberty, but still many people would prefer to have somebody say, just do these 10 things and you'll be good to go. Rather than this open-ended, you have to have a relationship with God and you have to discern and figure out and, and, uh, 
and translate and, and interpret all the things of what it means to have that relationship with God and how that impacts your life personally and the convictions that it leads to. And, and now you have to read the whole Bible and you have to read it continually and you have to continually seek to grow in your faith and to mature and to understand more and more of what it means to be a follower of Christ and to emulate Christ and imitate him and continue in this process till you die without ever a satisfying conclusion. How many would you would like just like 10 rules? And so it's this strange thing that Christianity from almost from day one, and I, I hesitate to say this because it sounds like I'm like the, the critic of Christianity, but the problem is that from day one, nearly day one, as soon as we had this new grasp of how to have a relationship with God through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrifice and the, and the, the payment that he paid and the freedom to have this new nature in Christ, we began to build structures, religion, rules, regulations, sacraments, ceremonies, rituals, etc., and on and on and on and to try to get people to understand what it means to be a Christian, and we love it. We're very satisfied in that. It doesn't feel like a problem at all. Just create some structures for us. Let's, let's hire some leaders to tell us what to do. We'll do those things, and we can just check out. And the problem is that no matter if you're Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian or Baptist or Catholic or non-denominational or Assembly of God or whatever tradition that you've ever come from or been in or go to, we all like this sense of rules and regulations. We feel comfortable in it. And we have to resist. We have to resist it to a degree because what happens is we check out of our relationship with God when we think that we've checked all the boxes in the rules. And people tend to uh, show up at church and read their Bibles and give their offering and check, 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 check. I've done those things. Okay, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, and I don't go with the girls that do. And so... Right? So therefore, I'm good to go. And all the while, checking all the boxes, I've never really spent any time or much time actually relating to and understanding what it means to have a personal, intimate, daily relationship with the God who saved me. And so they were offended because they liked the rules. And I think that we tend to not be as offended, but not get where the freedom comes in to actually make us children of God. It says, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So, let's think about this for a second. If the law can no longer save me, I can't do anything under the law to save me, that's not possible anymore, then the only thing left is Jesus or sin. People who are caught up in sin habits, sin practices, sinful lifestyle, do they feel like they're a slave to sin or do they feel like they're free? And they think that becoming a Christian means restriction, not freedom. If I become a Christian, I got to give up all those things that I like doing. 
If I become a Christian, if I, if I sign on with this whole thing of faith in Jesus, then I can't do and say and go to the places and be the kind of person that I used to be. I have to, I have to now try to be different. And for a lot of people, can I say this? For a lot of people, they will step into that half-heartedly acting like they are Christian when they're around Christians, but as soon as they step back out of the church or away from Christian people, they go right back into those sinful habits and patterns and behaviors and lifestyles, and they think that this is okay. I'm going to pretend that I'm living the same life that you all are living while I'm with you, but then when I'm not, because I'm free and I'm, I have grace and Jesus will forgive me, I'm going to go live how I want over here, and this seems more free than this right? And what a lot of people don't understand is that that sinful life, habit, behavior, whatever, is a trap. Because it is blocking you from intimacy with God, which is the thing that he made you for. And we live in these compartments, and we don't understand why when I'm in church, I don't feel close to God? Why, why don't I feel that way? Why don't I feel his presence? Why am I not sensing his movement? Why am I not hearing his voice? Why, why all these other people seem to be raising their hands and really joyful and, and all these things are going on in them and like they seem like they are sensing the movement of the Holy Spirit, but I'm over here like, I don't know what you guys are doing. And it's part of this. It's, it's hypocrisy. And why do people think that the church is full of hypocrites? Is because it is. And some of that is, and I've said this before, some of it's unfair because the, the world does not understand that as a Christian person, I'm still a, a sin, sinful person. I'm not nearly as good as I ought to be or could be, right? But I am seeking to live in a right relationship with God, which then changes how I deal with sin. Whereas the world, a lot of times, I think, looks at a person who goes to church, and this is why a lot of people don't go to church, because they think that in order to go to church, you have to live a perfect life. You ever heard that before? And here you are, you're not perfect, and you go to church, you're a hypocrite. That's not fair, because you're missing the whole concept of what grace and forgiveness and growing and maturing and trying to get this whole thing, discipleship, into your life means, right? So Jesus is helping us to understand this freedom. Have, have, have I made it as clear as mud yet? You become a child in the household of God. And this changes the whole, the whole issue. Um, let, me, let me say it this way. Um, about 20, oh man, 22 years ago, I met Molly Glavin. And uh, within a week, I had fallen in love with her. And uh, at some point, she fell in love with me too. So, so we met 
I mean, we were in love, um, but we did not date for, for about three months. We were friends, building a friendship, talking uh, quite a lot uh, every day. This is before, like, everybody had cell phones. Um, we were, we were um, just every night after class, we would just sit on the front steps and just talk for hours, okay? And uh, there was a point where we decided that we needed to make a, a step towards dating, towards courtship. And what we decided to do was to pause to uh, pray and fast. Okay, this, We thought it was a pretty big decision, whether we were going to move forward into what we thought could be marriage or not. And so we did this. We, we fasted for three days, and uh, we prayed, and we didn't talk to each other for that time. And it was the most miserable three days of my life. And, and only recently did I really interpret or understand what was really going on. I, for a long time, I thought it was just a spiritual battle, like there's just a spiritual warfare going on, because I was miserable. It was the most miserable three days of my life. But part of what was going on, which I learned later, was that I was significantly terrified that Molly would choose not to continue the relationship. I was in love with her, and I could not see my life without her. I couldn't imagine it. I, I did not want to imagine it. But it hinged on whether or not she would accept me. With, she would agree and she would come into a place of, of unity with, with my heart. And I was so afraid that she would choose not to. And uh, by the grace of God and somehow, um, I mean, <laughs> she prayed and fasted and, and God put us together. Here's the thing, is that when it comes to relationships, some of you have had broken hearts. You ever had a broken heart? You ever had somebody that rejected you? You ever had a, a relationship that you wanted and God said no? You ever had a marriage that broke and a relationship that ended that, that devastated your life? You ever had some of these things happen? That relationships take two people. Do you understand that? Here's the, the biblical, theological, spiritual reality is that God has been saying to the earth, to humanity for thousands of years, I love you, I want you, I am inviting you to come into a relationship with me that I've done everything possible to make it accessible, that, that there's this widespread love of God being poured out on the earth and he's inviting every single human being to respond to it. God will not lie. He will not fail. He will not uh, break a promise. He said to us through his word and through his son that I love you, I love you, I love you. And this is what is heartbreaking. It should be to us is that we have to try to convince people to accept God's invitation to have a relationship with him. And I was struck by that. Even after uh, the 8 o'clock service, I was struck by the reality of this, that, that statement that if you think that God is in heaven not caring whether or not you love him back, you're mistaken. His heart is broken for people to just love him back. He longs for a relationship with you. He's inviting you into an intimate, personal, daily walk with him. 
It's why Jesus died. It's what the whole Bible is about. It's what Christianity alludes to and, and points to and is trying to grow you into. Is just to have a relationship with God. And so that your relationship with God is where everything happens. That's, that's why we don't necessarily have to hammer on sin all the time. Because what happens in a relationship with God is that because I love him and respect him, I want to do what he wants me to do. I don't... It's not about following the rules for the sake of rules. It's about having an intimacy with God, a fellowship with God, a closeness with God that says, when I do things that hurt his heart, it hurts my heart. And so I repent. And this is the constant relationship that we're in is that when I do something wrong, I go, God, I'm sorry about that because I I feel like we're not as close as we need to be right now. And you didn't move and you didn't change. I did. And so I have to come back into that relationship and repair it through repentance and loving God and intimacy with God through his word and prayer. And we're constantly, somehow, for whatever reason, begging people just to have a relationship with God. The rules, all they do is they show you that you need him. That's that's all it does. Shows you that you can't get there by your own works. Shows you that it's impossible for you to be good enough so that you can come to a place of just saying, God, thank you for Jesus. I need you. Help me. And, and if we can do that, we just make that step of, of one m- movement closer to, to God in a relationship, then he's going to come all the rest of the way and he's going to say, I love you. I've been waiting for you. What have you been waiting for? It's my question to you. What have you been waiting for? You feel like you're as close to God as you want to be or need to be right now? You don't have to wait another moment. You don't have to wait another day. You don't have to get your life all straightened out. You don't have to get all your theology figured out. All you got to do is say, God, I love you. I am returning the love that you've given to me. I'm just saying, God, I love you. And show me the rest of the way. From this day forward, Let's walk together. Amen? Amen. Father, we love you. God, we thank you that uh, you make it possible. You paid the price, the entire price, Lord. There's, There's nothing more that we can do. We can't add to what Jesus did on the cross. All we can do is accept it. But, Lord, we pray that as we receive that and are changed and and restored into the new nature of, of Christ in us, that we would begin to walk daily, intimately with you in such a way that, that we honor you with our lives, wanting to keep that fellowship close, wanting to make sure that there's nothing, nothing in the way of, of our right relationship with you. We thank you that you make it possible, that you make it easy. <laughs> it's hard to even say that, but you make it easy. Through a step of faith, Lord, you make it as simple as possible. So I I praise you for that, and I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts to clarify, to confirm what you're saying through your word today, Lord. If anyone here today has a doubt about the nature and the reality of knowing you, I pray that you would just come speak into their ear, whisper how much you love them, so that they can respond with an I love you back. 
and we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to respond to God as he's calling you. And it may be a first time, you know what, I've been trying to do it on my own, or I've been a slave to sin, or I've been trying to do it by religion. I want to know God, and this is the first time I'm saying yes to Jesus. The altar is open for that. Um, It's a place, if you're not familiar, where at the front of the stage you come and you kneel and you say, God, I want you to confirm in my heart what you're speaking right now. And so I'm, I'm humbly putting myself in that position for you to do that. Nothing magical about it. You don't have to. You can do it right where you're at. Um, but if God wants to confirm that in your heart and you want to confirm that, then that's a place to do it. Um, for those who have felt far from God, and you know you're saved, you know that you're a believer and you've received Jesus, but you just haven't felt close um, it may just be today's the day to say, I'm, I'm not messing around with that anymore. I'm going to say yes to God. I'm going I'm to tell him I love him, and I'm going to do it in such a way that it's a daily thing. I love you, and I'm going to love you every day. Amen? Let's stand and sing as we respond to God.